So good morning again. Today we're going to be taking another little detour in these things that we've been talking about with the church. We're going to have an election for deacons, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. One of the very important things about the historical church through history is not just its nature, which we tend to focus on. The nature of the church is those who have been saved by Christ, those who have been enlightened in their eyes, who have been made spiritually alive from having previously been spiritually dead. But there's not only the nature of the church, there's also the form of the church. And there are many things in there, like how we do the sacraments and why we have a building. And one of those things is why we have officers. So we're going to look at some verses on that. I tend to find that this is one of the least looked into things for the average Christian. In other words, they wonder what's going on at those session meetings and those pastor meetings and those presbytery meetings, but not enough to really look up the verses on it. So we're going to look at it a little bit. Uh, for those of you that know a little about my background, when, uh, when my parents met, my dad was in the Navy, and he signed up to go to Vietnam, him and his friends. He was raised a Mennonite. You guys remember the Mennonites, right? Beards, black clothes, butter churns. So they didn't go into the Navy, right? But he and his friends went through their youthful rebellion and they went into the Navy. And his three friends went to Vietnam and he went to the Caribbean. (laughs) Spent his entire tour on a destroyer, getting a suntan. And there he met my mom, who was Roman Catholic. So the Mennonite Roman Catholic thing that happens so often. But they were in love, and you know, love conquers all, and they didn't worry about any of that kind of mess and until my older brother, Donald, was born, and my mother was actually walking out of the house to go to Mass to get my, little, my older brother baptized, and my father said, wait, we don't do that. And she said, oh, yes, we do. He said, no, we don't. And all of a sudden, it all got serious, right? All of a sudden, they both noticed we have differences in theology that are manifesting themselves in our relationship. Now, it wasn't until I was about, you know, I don't remember that part because he was three years older than me. But it wasn't until I was about nine or ten that they went through a Pentecostal conversion. That was spicy. <laughs> you know the Pentecostals, holy rollers, they yell a lot in church, they never sing a song that they can sing on key, all that stuff. Uh, but also, he ended up going to seminary at Christ for the Nations outside of Dallas. And we ended up there for many years. Uh, But my dad became a pastor in the Assemblies of God. Now let me tell you guys something that's an inside thing. You know about pastor's kids, right? They're a mess, right? (laughs) Me and all my brothers. But here's the thing about that. There's only some truth to it. Really, it's a huge benefit. It's a huge blessing to have your parents be in the ministry. It is. But there are these other things to it that I saw at an early age. So here's, you guys might have noticed, I have a pretty easy time talking to teenagers that don't want to go to church and people in their 20s, because I was there. By the time I was like 16, 17, I was done with church, because I had seen church splits, and I had seen the fights, and I had seen pastors get fired, I'd seen the squabbles, and especially I saw it in the Pentecostal church with a lot of fake healings and people dying, so that was a pretty heavy thing, right? So really, I was not into church much at all. And I kind of understand it. I had to get to this place in my relationship with God where I really felt like, uh, really, it's about my relationship with Jesus. The church is kind of a secondary thing. But I wouldn't really go to most churches because I was suspicious of churchy people. Right? You might think to yourself, well, 
you're a pastor. You're probably the most churchy one in the room right now. And that's probably true. But there was a space there where I started to question the church and the church's form and its order and the people that ran it. I almost became suspicious as a Christian of people that go to church. Now, that happened when I was a teenager. The reason I remember it now in my 50s is because that keeps me honest. When I meet somebody for the first time or they come in or, you know, we have that conversation, they're like, what do you, well, what do, you do? And I'm like, eh, I'm a pastor of a church. What? I'm a pastor of a church. And they go like, oh. Aren't they supposed to go, wow, you're a pastor? Can I touch you? Can I get some of that Holy Ghost stuff off you? And stuff? That's not usually what happens. That's my, what might have happened 50 years ago. That does not happen now. Usually you're especially suspect, right? So we remember the way people perceive the church because here's what's happened. When the church is big and free and successful, everybody wants in. They all come in and they all want to be a part of it. Have you ever known of a political candidate running for office that isn't in church every Sunday? They're in church every Sunday and there's news crews there with cameras on them to show them going to church. Right? And the church can be like that. It can become a game show. It can become a terrible thing, right? But we understand that about the church. But let me tell you one thing that I had to come to terms with. None of that was sufficient reason for me to not go to church. My relationship is with the church, secondarily, but my primary relationship is with Jesus Christ. And he wants a meeting with me on Sundays. And I get to go to church. And I get to sing praises to him. And it fills my heart with joy. I need that. He knew I needed it. He ordered me to go. It's kind of like when you order your kids to clean their room because they need to, even though they don't want to. It needs to be done, right? Otherwise, you won't be able to see the floor after a couple weeks. You need a rope, some kind of pickaxe. I'm just kidding, kids. <laughs> but I need it. And I also get to come in and do corporate worship. Now, it's one thing for me to do it alone, right? The Bible does say, go into your prayer closet, just pray between you and God, and that's very important. But there's a special thing that happens here, which is a compendium of heaven, where we come together with the people of God, and we worship with one voice. And the mere fact of the people on your left and the right will encourage your soul and increase your faith. So church is actually important. When we go to the form of it, we know about pastors, you know, we kind of know about elders, we know about deacons, we hear these words, the different denominational backgrounds, you know we have people from every different denomination on, under heaven here, right, except for maybe Assyrian Orthodox, I don't know if we have any of those, but, but we come from all these different backgrounds, and there are some subtly different interpretations of how churches are supposed to be run, but there's some things that are just plainly laid out in scripture, right? So we're going to start in Acts, chapter 2 and deal with one common question. Now from verse 12, you'll see down through 13, they go through the list of the apostles. The disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, had become apostles. We're not going to go that deeply into it, but we are going to say this. Apostles were a special group they were given a special ability to, by God to not err when they wrote sacred scripture. The Holy Spirit superintended their writing in such a way as that they gave us the very words of the very God, and we still have those today in the Bible, right? 
But we would say that it's not a perpetual office, and that means that we don't believe there are any apostles today that can walk up here and say, thus saith the word of the Lord, unless they're reading from this book. In other words, you remember, I was raised Pentecostal. Every 15 minutes, we had somebody coming up there saying, here's your new message from God. And the people would take it as a message from God. The problem was, next week, somebody else would have a different message. Right? And it might not even take a week. It might be 15 minutes. So everybody believed they were having these special messages from God, that they were all apostles in a sense, and all the messages contradicted each other, and it made for confusion in the church, deep confusion, that led to the church splits and the suffering and the confusion, because everybody became their own Bible. So now here he says at verse 15, In those days Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. This is the very early days of the church, right? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. You remember Judas, he was the bad one that betrayed Jesus, the one of the twelve that became a bad guy, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. Because it's written in the book of the Psalms, which were written 700 years before the event happened. May his camp be desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us. See the qualification there? It had to be one of the ones that was with them from the very beginning who knew Jesus and was taught by Jesus personally. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up for us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Take the place in the ministry and apostleship, which was from Judas, turned aside and gone to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. So that's how they got an apostle. Had to be a member of Christ's earthly ministry. Had to have been there from the beginning, or at least since the baptism of John. That's the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was a part of it the whole time. Now, there is a very special person in the Bible that calls himself one abnormally born in regard to his apostleship. And who's that? The Apostle Paul. But he was also chosen and tutored by Jesus personally, right? But it was a little different. It was a little weird. Paul's entire job, and you can read about this in the book of Acts, it's a fascinating story, is he's the prosecuting attorney at the trials of Christians who are being prosecuted for heresy and put to death. His job is basically to persecute and kill Christians. And one day when he's on the road to Damascus with all the other bad guys, and they're going off to a trial there, a bright light appears so bright that it blinds him and it scars his eyes with something like scales and he falls off his horse and he hears a voice calling from heaven, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, I don't even know who you are. And the voice says, I'm Jesus. Why do you kick against the goads? Do any of you remember goads from your farming days? There were these spikes that were behind uh, the horse or the ox's feet so that it would try to break apart the entire cart it hit the goads and it hurt the ox so he wouldn't act like such a fool right 
says to him, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? In other words, why do you frustrate yourself fighting against the inevitable? Why don't you just conform to what's good and right? And from that moment, Saul had been taught by Jesus directly, and he became an apostle, one abnormally born. He goes on in that apostleship, and he interacts with Peter, and he interacts with others. But if, you, if these things don't apply to you, you're not an apostle. You might be a great person, you might be a great teacher, but you are not an apostle. We don't have any more apostles, right? But we have other things. Pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, we still have some things. Let's go on and see about that. Let's take a look at chapter 6. From verse 1, Now in these days when the apostles were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that was the Greeks, rose against the Hebrews, that was the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember, kind of the Bible's idea of charity and things like that is that people give according to their own free will. They don't really have to, right? They have the freedom to give and to receive that blessing. But also, it's not really a job relegated to the government. It's a job relegated to the church. The church cares for the poor and the needy and the sick. And the government's real job is pretty much limited to fighting wars against foreign aggression, right? So as it goes on, it's not right. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. There were a lot more disciples than there were apostles. Not every disciple was an apostle, but every apostle was a disciple. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men full of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So who picked them out? The people, right? Who ordained them after they were picked out? The apostles, right? And this is something that goes deep into the heart of why we believe in a Presbyterian form of church government. Those who serve you in the Lord, those who teach you, you pick those people. It's what they did in the Bible. I know that a lot of denominations have an easy time getting rid of this. There are lots of arguments against this, but in Scripture it says the people must approve of whoever is going to be above them in the Lord, right? It became, through Christianity, even an entire way of government that came to the United States of America and certain parts of the country, right? That your leaders should be chosen by the people that they're going to serve. You get a different kind of person than if they're chosen by the people at the top. The Bible has a concentration of power at the top, but it's upside down. Those are the people that serve you, not that just rule you and tell you what to do. There's this thing about the servant spirit or the person that's under the people. They have the decision-making authority, but it's to serve others, right? You guys remember Braveheart, Sir William Wallace? You think the people exist in order to serve you, but your position exists in order to give them their freedom, right? That's a secular adaptation, but I think it works. So, so that's what they did. Now let's go ahead and go to Acts. Excuse me, 1 Timothy. verse 8 of chapter 2, what you're going to see here is two different offices. There's reasons why we have these different distinct offices, right? And you're going to see two of them played out here. And it'll be really obvious that the Apostle Paul says there's supposed to be two, and that they're distinct, and they're different. I desire that in every place the men should pray, 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. First, let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. I wanted to mention one of the reasons that we do the liturgy that we do. You remember, you remember how I sometimes say, the reason we do the liturgy this way is because the Bible told us to put all these things in our church service. Well, here's one of the places where the Apostle Paul talks about this in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. It's just one of the places, you know, like I, I always pray for those in positions of authority, right? And some people actually have a problem with that. They say we shouldn't pray about governments or police officers or presidents or things like that. This is, this is about God. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul says pray for it. We're praying for it. Supplications is asking God for things. Intercession is me praying for you and you praying for me. All these things are things from Scripture. They're not just stuff that we made up and stuffed into the service. Sometimes the service at a church like this can actually seem a little full we got a lot of stuff we're getting through here, right? And we've got it all in a certain order. But it's not without biblical warrant. And it's not as if the Bible didn't actually tell us, make sure you do this stuff, right? Verse 9, Likewise that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess, profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And now he gets to the point. This saying is trustworthy. What one? The one he's about to say. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer. Now, there are two words in the Bible for this overseer position, and they've both been translated literally into English in different forms of church government. One is Presbyterian, which we call our form of government that, and the other is Episcopalian. Episcopos is usually translated overseer, and Presbyterian is usually translated what? Elder, Elder right? But the judgment of history is both of these things, when they're used, are talking about the same office, because when they're described in the Bible, it says exactly the same thing. So the word isn't the important thing. The idea behind it is the important thing. And an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Because you know what things were like in those days, right? How many wives did like Solomon have? Super bad idea, right? Worked out very badly for him if you read really to the end of the story, right? But it was very common for people to have more than one wife in those days. And the Bible says, yeah, but if they're going to be an overseer in the church, you know, that's just not God's design for that kind of thing. Sober-minded. Now, sober-minded does not mean they don't like a little uh, whiskey once in a while. <laughs> Maybe that's a problem too, but that's not what it means. Sober of mind, Right? self-controlled. That means you don't have to be controlled by everybody around you. One of the reasons that we don't let children drive cars, drink alcohol, or carry weapons is because they're not self-controlled. We have to control them. We have to have an outside agency, usually being the parents, to help them to control themselves, right? Until they get to the place where they can make their own decisions and their own judgments. So the control over the self, respectable, hospitable. This word, 
uh, hospitable is related to the uh, English word uh, that, we, that we tend to use as uh, xenophobic, right? Being afraid of the other. And what it, what it means is embracing the other, the one who's not like you. We have more than enough verses in the Bible that say you have to take care of your family and the people that, love, that you love, right? And everybody knows they have to take care of their family and their own children. It's rarely not done because everybody kind of knows it. It's natural. It comes right out of us. But what about taking care of people that aren't like you and being warm and invited to people that are different or come from a different background or even a different religion? You know, most people don't come into the Christian faith just through the door of hearing a great sermon. Most people come into the Christian faith through meeting a Christian. And from the love and the establishment of that relationship and the hospitality and the things that they see in that person's life and works and thoughts, they start to become interested in a God they had not formerly known. So hospitality is a requirement. Able to teach. Now this is one elders, it said, must fulfill this requirement. They must be able to teach. We will notice as we get to the idea of deacons that this is one of the only things that's not also in the diaconal thing. So is it good if deacons can teach? Yes, but is it a requirement that they be able to stand up here and do a sermon? Uh, No, because they're not required to be able to teach, right? Does that mean that they're not allowed to teach? Those are different, right? If a deacon knows scripture, he can teach, of course, you know, all kinds of different things. But to be an elder, they must actually be able to teach because the actual expression of gospel ministry is built into their job description. Not a drunkard. So there's the one for whiskey. Not violent, but gentle. Hey, there's a, there's a difference between pastors and generals, right? There's a difference. There's lots of good guys that are violent. Being violent is not always bad. Some people are great at being violent, and we actually commend them for it, and they have jobs in which they might have to exercise violence in order to keep the rest of us safe, right? That happens. Violence in itself is not problematic. It's just when, why, and how you do it that's the problem. But you're calling for a different kind of purpose person for the ministry, one that's gentle, not one that's violent. Not quarrelsome. Argumentative people tend to make really bad overseers and not a lover of money because that'll stumble them every time. Their entire ministry is that the entire ministry seems to be them making money. And if you send them enough money, God will bless you, right? Well, let me tell you uncomfortably, no matter how much money you send me, God may not bless you at all in that. He might just think you are a terrible steward of your funds if you just start sending us all your money, right? There is no blessing in that. It's a trick. Hey, everybody's not in the ministry for the same reason, right? Everybody's not driven by the same thing. But lovers of money cannot be the elders. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church, which is also a household? He must not be a recent convert. How recent? He doesn't say, right? But we all kind of get it that if somebody's really new to the faith, they're not ready to be put in that position. I got involved in a church in my early 20s in which pretty much the oldest elder in the church was, I think, 27. It did not go well. Almost every relationship in that church, even though it rapidly got to 200, 300, 400 members, disintegrated through time as things broke down because they were just not ready for that, right? So there is a little bit of personal maturity, but also spiritual maturity through time, which is necessary to that office. 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It is really easy in the ministry to really think you're something, right? It is. Present company accepted. Okay. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. It's an interesting thing, right? Why? Shouldn't all the outsiders hate him if he's really a man of God? It's not what it says, right? Hey, being an elder, a lot of it is getting along with folks. It is. And if the people outside the church don't like you, can't get along with you, don't think well of you, they're sure not, sure not going to come in, right? So the Apostle Paul in his wisdom puts that in there. Now to deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not speaking out both sides of their mouth, not causing trouble, not addicted to much wine. We saw this in the same qualifications for overseers, right? That's because, really, these are not high standards. You might think to yourself, wow, that's a pretty high standard. It is a low standard. It's just you've got to be a basic, credible Christian. The standard's not up here. It's just kind of normal, Right? You have to be in control of your appetites. You have to have a good understanding of the word of God. You have to be striving to live after it. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And this would be the point where we would see next. Must be able to teach, but it doesn't say that. It does say they have to know. They have to hold to the faith as it's taught in the Bible with a clear conscience. They have to know what it is. They have to believe it. They have to understand it. They don't necessarily have to have gifts of teaching. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, not so, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he is kind of saying that if you serve in these offices, it is better for your faith. You might think, well, that's cheating. It's not. I'm going to stay out of a lot of sins that I probably would get into by the mere fact that I have to do this every week and it keeps the faith right in front of me all the time, right? Just like being in church helps us to persevere as Christians, just like Christian marriage helps us to persevere as Christians, just like having children helps us persevere in Christians. Uh, being an officer in the church is actually a benefit to our personal faith, or at least it should be. Now let's take a look at one more before we end, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> still talking about overseers, elders and deacons, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, <coughs> rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people more and more into ungodliness. Moving down to verse 22 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 22. And again, this is still mainly concentrating. We could use this on everybody, but it's mainly concentrating on those who lead. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know what they breed, quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by his will, by him to do his will. Okay, so that's a little treatment of that, which will also be a preparative to the election that we're going to have after the service. We have to remember that these little things that we do down here that can be easily brushed by, God keeps account of them in heaven. He pays attention to them because we're acting in a way as his emissaries, his ambassadors, his envoys. The thing like an election, when somebody is ordained to an office, God keeps account, and he measures them accordingly. Having a higher level of authority means you're under a higher level of scrutiny, right? So these offices are an expression of scripture, not, a, not an expression of just mere practicality or what we would like to do. Also, when the elders come together and they lay hands on that person, God pays attention to that. In a sense, every elder is saying, I approve of this person. And in a way, at this election, there's this idea called the priesthood of all believers, that every baptized believer is included into the royal priesthood of Christ, and so you have not only the opportunity, but you also have authority to choose those that will serve among you. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for this time of coming together in your name. We pray, Lord God, that you would teach us your word, that you would let it dwell in us deeply and richly, that you would strengthen us in it, Lord God, that you would make it firm and fixed in our heart and mind so that we would follow nothing but you, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we'll sing the first verse of the hymn in your bulletin handout. God of our fathers, which is number 547. Please rise.
Please be seated. As we take the Lord's Supper, we, we know and remember that this meal is a family meal, similar to the Old Testament Passover. And when we come together to eat it, all of those included are the family are here, and we would like for all of you to be included. But there is a process. One of them is that you be a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other, if you're young, is that you've been admitted to the table by the session, as they've asked you a few questions about what it is that you believe. Lord our God, we pray that you would set apart this meal, this bread, Lord God, from a common to a sacred use. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are of one body, for we all partake of one bread. Then the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. Lord our God, likewise, this wine, we pray, Lord God, that you would set it apart from a common to a holy use. Amen.
brothers and sisters, <coughs> we don't believe that this is a magical event. We also do not believe that we are literally drinking Christ's blood that the juice has been transformed into. We also don't believe that we're literally chewing his flesh. But we do believe in a thing called the spiritual presence. In other words, this is not a mere thing going on in our head as remembering what Christ has done. It is that, but it's more. We do believe that associated with these mere signs of bread and juice, that God is actually feeding us spiritually at the same time because he has chosen to set up a relationship between the sign and the thing signified by the sign. That's one of the reasons that it's not for anybody that's not a believer. It's a special event that happens between us and our Christ. In the same way, he also took the cup. After the supper, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take it, drink. Please rise as we sing the next few verses of the hymn. <coughs>
people of God, as stated, if you hadn't heard about this before, we are having a congregational meeting within five minutes right after this service. It'll be short, but it'll be for the election of deacons. Everybody's allowed to stay, though. Uh, right after that, we are going to have a short meeting of the choir. So everybody who wants to sing will meet in the back room over here on this side. We also will have uh, some refreshments in the other room. If you just want to hang out and talk to people, in any case, do not escape this room without meeting someone, please. <laughs> now look up, don't look down, don't close your eyes, and receive the blessing of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.